sacred space. It's one of the most powerful forces in religion and deep in our souls. We all yearn to worship in that special place. Let's turn with our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, to the Apostle Paul's instructions to Timothy, a young pastor, and see the space that Paul considers sacred and look at the precious treasure that is contained in this holy place. How many of you have been in the new Texas stadium? Even driving around it, wouldn't you agree with me? It is one of the wonders of the NFL. The ancient world had the seven to wonder of the world. Right here in Dallas, we have one of the wonders of the world, an incredible facility. And Jerry Jones packs thousands and thousands of people. But you know, that's an incredible facility, but he forgot one thing. You need a team to play in the building. You see, the wondrous question in the NFL is, can Jerry Jones, we know he can build a building. What we don't know is, can he build a Super Bowl team? That's the million-dollar, multi-million-dollar question in the NFL. That's true. The big question. So one of the things we're confronted with right here in the area, we go by a beautiful facility. It's a building, and yet we don't have what's really needed what football's really about. You know, the same thing can happen in church. In fact, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, when I mention the word church, the very first thing that you come to mind is that's St. Peter's in Rome. If you're from a Roman Catholic background, you hunger to go to that place. If you're Anglican and you go to London, you all need to go to St. Paul's. By the time you've ever heard the expression, you know, taking from Peter to pay St. Paul. You ever heard that expression, taken from Peter to give to Paul? You know where that expression came from? The Roman Catholics are trying to build the first building I, that he gave to you. The Anglicans in England are trying to build this building, and so that's the big conflict. You know, will you support St. Paul's or St. Peter's? These are very holy places, very powerful places. If you're from a Mormon background, how many of you ever been to Utah? There's the holy place for, the, for the, all the Mormons. And the, you, you all want to make the holy pilgrimage to Salt Lake City. And you want to be able to hear the Mormon Tabernacle Choir be able to sing in their holy place. Those are some of the most powerful religious forces deep inside your heart. You automatically move towards that kind of sacred space. I just went through Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Mormonism. It's even bigger than that. If you're from a Muslim background, one of the five pillars of the Muslim faith is that at least once in your life, if you can possibly afford it, you need to make the pilgrimage to Mecca, and you need to go to the great mosque, and there will be more than two million people that gather together to look at the black box that has a meteor inside of it, because that's the most sacred space if you're a Muslim. The idea of going to sacred ground, going to sacred space. Like I challenge you, tomorrow when you go to work, you tell the people at work, did you visit the house of the Lord this week? Just try that out. When you eat lunch with some buddies, just as you're eating, you know, wherever you eat, just say it in the meal. Hey, did any of you go to the house of the Lord this week? What will they think you're asking them? That you went into a building. You all have that. We've been talking about what is marriage. I started out way back in Genesis 1 through 3, and we spelled out the foundational time where, where the living God of the universe created Adam and Eve. 
And he said that they should be fruitful, multiply. And we talked about the fact that as we define marriage in our culture, the most important person we can't leave out is the one that created human beings. And the one that created marriage, don't you think that's a pretty good idea? If you're going to define something, don't leave out the one that created it. So we talked about a man and a woman that is intimately related to the living God. And we talked about how Christ, by his power, recreates that in us. He can help a husband to genuinely love his wife, and he can help a wife to genuinely be respectful and and really be united with her husband as an ally, and together they can generate children. We talked about the meaning of marriage, biblically. Then we switched and talked about family. Talked about our culture is really in a lot of discussion about what is family. And we talked about the incredible thing that our Savior actually said that, that it wasn't just our nuclear families, but when Jesus came to this earth, one of the most powerful things, he says, it's not just your own individual household. It's not just your Jewish household. But I want you to even love your enemies. I want you to call Samaritans your brothers and sisters. I want you to even reach into centurion's life. And so he healed a centurion. I want you to have Syrophoenician Canaanites that were under the curse in the Old Testament that General Joshua went in to exterminate. And you college kids will hear about how this horrible, immoral thing that the Jews exterminated the Canaanites. No, they never did it. They never fulfilled that. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus, the Messiah, went and the Syrophoenician Canaanite woman said, Lord, I want you to heal me. And he said, I can't give to the dogs what is meant for the children. And then she responded, yeah, but even the dogs get the treats, that, that the crumbs that fall off the table incredible faith. And, in, and, and Matthew's gospel ends by saying, go and make disciples of every nation. That should mean to you that Jesus takes the idea of your individual family and he opens the door to say, your individual family needs to become a place that reaches the world, that reaches all different kinds of people. And so we were challenged about that. What we want to talk about now is we've talked about marriage, which generates family, I want to talk to you the next few times we teach together about what is God's family? What is the church? And what I want you to think really deeply about is that in English, when I mention the word church, you jump immediately house of God, temple, place. And if as a pastor, if I can get you to make the connection, then man, we can get this carpet changed. By the way, we really need to do that. And I can get you to support the plant, especially if I can connect it. If you put in a really nice carpet, you can get out of purgatory fast. Or you can help your loved ones. That's what happens. I want you to really think as a believer, what does God mean when he talks about his household? What does God mean when he talks about his church? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, because there is a passage that I want all you guys in construction. Like, one of the major things I did in construction is I laid foundations. We'd lay the the bases to put columns up and everything, but I never got to do the finish work. There's probably a good reason for that. There is a passage of Scripture that God, through his inspired apostle, actually talks to us about pillars, 
So all you got in construction, your heavenly daddy knows all about pillars. He knows all about the supporting columns. He actually uses a word in Greek that it's really hard. It's a word that means kind of the foundation of the thing. And the Greeks, the words aren't quite as technical as they are in English sometimes in this particular case. But I use the word buttresses because you have the idea of the supports that you have a strong foundation and buttresses that help the walls and support the roof. Those are the words that are used. So we actually have a portion of the Bible that's talking about the church, and it talks about pillars, and it talks about buttresses, but I want you to listen really carefully to what this passage says. Who's going to decide for you what a church is? Who's going to decide to you what a household of God is? I can't do that. I really want you to know as your pastor that, that it's not what I think about things. It's not what I believe about things, but I want to be a tool that is a servant to you that you really listen to the foundational apostles and you've got recorded the great apostle Paul is near the end of his life. This is a man that saw the resurrected Christ in the Damascus Road. He's devoted his whole life. He's been whipped. He's been beaten. They killed him. The Lord really brought him back from the dead when he was stoned in Lystra. And he's now been imprisoned by Nero. They let him go. He was free for a while, and when he wrote this book, he sent Timothy to Ephesus, which is a major city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he's running them. And notice what he says if you look at chapter 3, verse 14. It says, although I hope to come to you soon, and I want you to feel he still has a passion, even though he'd been in prison, he's been released, he's an older man, he's saying, I still have a passion, I want to come to you, Timothy, my brother. So you automatically start to sense this is a father-son relationship. In fact, the man that the Apostle Paul is writing with was actually born into God's family through the fatherly witness of the gospel through the Apostle Paul to this young man that didn't have a daddy that, would, that believed in God or believed in Jesus as far as we know. He was a mama's boy and a grandmother's boy. But the Lord used this great, powerful daddy that he opened his heart and he reached out to this young man and Paul is still expressing, it's like he's saying to my son, I can hardly wait to see you again. Don't you daddies long to be able to get back with your kids after you empty your nest and then you're thankful you can empty it again, Right? And I want you to feel that the body of Christ is filled with family intimacy. And the Apostle Paul is expressing, it's a word of emotion. I hope to come to you soon. And I'm writing to you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, and that encourages me because I make all kinds of plans. How many of you make all kinds of plans that they don't work out? Well, the great Apostle Paul, that's not a sign that the Lord's not in your hand. In fact, as you look back over your life, you find out it's all those delays that, that, that when you were delayed from doing what you really thought you should be doing, that's when the Lord was really using you. That's real important to understand. There's a great mystery as you live your life. So walk with the Lord every single day. Live intimately with him. That's what we, the, the great apostle Paul didn't know whether he'd get back to Ephesus. In fact, he's on a journey where he's going to get arrested again, and eventually he loses his life for the gospel, and his tomb is in Rome. That's one of the the pulls, what made Rome so central because the great apostle Paul died there and the great apostle Peter was a martyr there. That's what St. Peter's bones are what make that place supposedly holy. The great St. Peter and the great St. Paul pointing us not to columns like that, not to beautiful art like that, as great as that is culturally. I want you to understand that it's not going to help you in your intimacy, and in your closeness, and whether or not you're able to live with God forever and ever. 
And the great apostle Paul is saying, I'm, I, if I'm delayed, I want you to know how people, that's you, down through the centuries, ought to be able to conduct themselves in God's household. So the apostle Paul is talking to you about God's household. And so I asked myself, what in the world is God's household to the apostle Paul? Well, could it have been columns? Could it have been buttress walls? Could it have been holy places, buildings, that the apostle Paul is saying, now, Timothy, you be sure if I'm delayed. I want people to know not to run in the hallways when they're little kids. I want them to know this is a holy place. Make sure when they go to the building in, in Ephesus that they understand that it's the sanctuary. It's the place where we go to visit God. How many of you think that's what the apostle Paul is thinking? That's the way a lot of you think and I think. You jump like that, just like that. One of the nuttiest things is as those that believe the church needed to be reformed, that's one of the great powerful things is that the scripture was unveiled again. You say, Dave, how do you know the apostle Paul wasn't speaking about that? Because there weren't any churches that were building. There wasn't any column you could go to. There weren't any pillars. There was no foundation buildings you could go to in Ephesus. They had no building. In fact, you don't really get buildings until after the persecution. Persecuted people don't build buildings that soldiers can come in and mow everybody down. The church in China is under persecution. Some of my buddies work with a house church. Now, there's a church that is recognized, and we also work with that because the Lord's doing some incredibly creative things. But for years and years and years, I've been exposed to the house church movement. How many buildings do you think the house church has in China? Absolutely none. No no buildings at all. The United States has the most Christians in the world. The most Christians in the world. Okay. Brazil is right behind in the number of people that are professing Christ. You know what the third country in the world, you can try this. As you're talking to your friends at work and you're trying to get across to them, hey, I want you to know that I'm the house of the Lord. And I gather together with a whole bunch of parts of the house of the Lord, living stone. That's what we're talking about today. You can also challenge them and say, hey, you know, there's a, a place in the world, more believers than anywhere else except the United States and Brazil. Guess what country it is? It's China. So I want you to understand the power of this. And I want us as a church family to think about how that influences the way we live. And the Apostle Paul is not speaking about mortars and stone and brick, which we so easily move into. He's talking about people, you, you. You, every single one of you, if you've come to faith in Jesus, if you believe that he died for you, if you believe he rose again, then First Peter will call you a living stone. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says that you're all being built up into a holy temple. But he's not speaking about mortar and brick, which, which I in my own heart quickly moved to. But he's talking about you. Like as we gather together, like Mary was saying to me this week as she was reading on the notes, she said, man, you know what I mean? A tornado can blow our whole church family, the whole building away. Has it, has it really, really touched this part of the body of Christ? We can gather together in a field, can't we? And I want you to understand the power of that. So the Apostle Paul is really speaking to us and he says something really important. He says, you... 
because you've come to know Christ, are joining together with millions of believers from the first century when the Apostle Paul was writing all the way down into the present, millions upon millions of living people. Some of them have gone home to be the Lord. Some of you, as you sit here today, you used to sit with someone right here And they were the temple of God. They've received Jesus as their Savior. Some of you have tremendous stories. What I'm telling you is that they are now in the living, worshiping community. They're with the Lord, and they're actually seeing him. And they haven't disappeared. They're not gone forever. And that can give you incredible comfort today. I also want you to realize that the person sitting next to you is a very special person. That you need to hang in there with them. Because they're the dwelling place of the living God. And they're going to go through ups and downs and and all kinds of struggles and all kinds of testing in life. But we need to hang in there as brothers and sisters. Our culture is losing what it means to be really related to each other. We're traveling a lot and we divide our legitimate physical families. We're away from each other. Just like my own family is scattered all over the place. So we start to become very isolated and we look to other places so that we do big tailgate parties. You know what that's about? That's the hunger to be close to people. And one of the things you'll use is you'll drink a lot because it gets you over your inhibitions and you have a great time and there's warmth and there's closeness and you celebrate. That's what they did in the pagan world to get close. I want the Holy Spirit this morning to stir you to stir you about the power that we can have creating real relationship in Jesus. And Satan's going to attack that like crazy. That we can live with each other as brothers and sisters and that we realize when we gather together with other believers in our homes, that's a holy place. When we gather together as a daddy before our kids go to bed and we, we, we pray with them and we really teach them God's word in a living, powerful way, that right there around that bed with your kids, that's a holy place. When you talk to your unbelieving friend tomorrow that works with you and you try to begin to just get into discussions about what's the house of God, you can just throw out there, I'm the house of God. And they'll laugh at you, just drop it. But later on, they're going to ask you, that was a weird thing to say, and it, it opened up the door to share Jesus. You in your life have the living God inside of you. Do you realize the power of that statement? It verifies what I just said. I can't guarantee that any of your loved ones that have died are going to still exist, are going to still live. I can't do a thing to help you as you leave this auditorium to hang in there with Jesus and keep loving him and work through all the struggles you have. But I want you to know this morning, it's incredible, the living God. You know that that all the Hindu gods, they're not alive. The power of Buddhism is not a living, eternal thing. Your God that we worship today, what Paul just says is in the ancient world, they worship all these dead idols. And, and the, the believers, both the Jewish believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament believers, they made fun of the pagans in a holy way because they would say things like, you take a piece of wood, like Isaiah would say, you take a piece of wood. You cut it in half, and one side of it, you carve beautifully. You turn it and do all those creative things. You cover it with gold, and then you carry it all over the place. And you get down your knees and say, oh, beautiful idol. Oh, man, what an incredible. I want you to meet my needs. And then you take the other half of the log, and when it gets cold on a fall day, you throw it in the fire and burn the thing up. 
And Isaiah will say, how stupid can you get? You burn one half of it to be fuel for your house, and the other half you think is going to meet your needs. That's stupid. But I want you to know you have the living God this morning in my life and in your life. Isn't that wonderful? I'm not alive in my own strength, and neither are you. We can't make this church family work in our own strength. We can't solve personality problems in our, in our families. Some of you that are wrestling with depression and, and, the, and the, you're, you're still in a physical body and it gets tired, it gets worn out, your emotions. You can't beat that in your own strength. And you're not going to totally conquer it with medicine. I want you to know this morning you have the living God. He's in your life today if you know Jesus. Relish that. Rest in it. You're the, you're the house of God. And when you gather, what makes this morning so powerful is that now we've concentrated this presence of God. Isn't that wonderful? That we can gather together and now we've got all these living stones and we can begin to have a little bit of expression of what heaven's going to be like. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You, living people, joining with believers down through the ages that are now in heaven cheering you on according to Hebrews chapter 12. You're the house of God. You're the living stones. You're the household of faith. And God uses a very personal word. You are God's kids. He's your heavenly daddy. Jesus is our eternal big brother. And it's all because of Calvary, amen? Now, what do we have in this house? What do you have in your life? As we gather together, I want you to know it isn't a building, it's you. What do we have that's so precious? See, in the ancient world, you don't realize it, but like in our culture, like temples are like the sacred ground. And I'm telling you, you're the sacred ground. And the incredible thing about the new covenant is we take the sacred ground in your living personality all throughout the world. But I also want you to know in the ancient world, temples were the place where you put your precious possessions. The reason why Alexander the Great would attack and when he conquered a people, he'd ransack their temple. The reason you have a very clear example, when Nebuchadnezzar burned the temple in Jerusalem, he went into the temple treasuries and he took, remember in Daniel chapter 1, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar taking all of the utensils, the gold temple. You say, why did he do that? Because in the ancient world, the temple is where it was your bank. It was your nation's bank. That's where you kept millions of dollars worth of stuff. Solomon had incredible gold, incredible jewels. That was the treasure house. And I am blown away. As I look at your life today, you have incredible jewels in your life. Every one of you that know Jesus. You know what those jewels are? Some of you don't even understand how precious those jewels are. Some of you say, man, what I really need, I need some self-help. I need some motivation. I need need to come to a a group of believers, and I need to just be, just lift it up. You can do it. You're powerful. We can beat. Man, come on. We need to have a positive spirit. We can do it. I love positive thinking. I was raised selling, and I put myself through college, and the best positive motivators I ever heard were not in church. And one of the very best that was in church, Robert Schuller, his building is Glass Cathedral. We need to just pray that the true believers in that body of Christ will unite together. It's really serious. Our culture said this is the temple. That isn't the Glass Cathedral. Who cares? Down in First Baptist, all of my life, Mary and I, when we first came to Dallas, we went to First Baptist Dallas. I was blown away by the buildings. 
One of my close friends that's a, a leader there at First Baptist just showed me a video. Except for the original building, you know what they did to First Baptist? They blew the whole thing up. Hey, it's you. I want every one of you to know it's you. It's you. You're the million-dollar gift. And it's what you possess and the gem that's in your life are some very special things. Number one gem is the incarnation of Jesus. The living God of the universe didn't stay in transcendent otherness. If you were Jews, I would talk to you about the great tetragrammaton. I can't even mention his name. And if you're Jewish, you would curse Jesus because Jesus, when you study the New Testament, what he got crucified for is he actually told Jewish people, I and my father are one. He told his disciples, you can write this down. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh, and he lived among us. And we beheld his glory, the wonder of the Father. I talked to a, an African-American guy in prison yesterday. He says, I believe in the true God. I believe in the God of the Old Testament. Judaism, I think, has the answer. And I've turned away because the Christendom was racist and it, it generated tremendous hate from my people. Show me a church where I could get out of prison and walk in as an African-American. There's, but, you know, I couldn't get him to separate the racism and the, the hurt and the persecution and the, the terrible thing that had been done in the name of Jesus in Christendom, I couldn't get him to separate about the one that became flesh. And this rather, but I want you to know one of the most precious treasures, the Apostle Paul says, he appeared in a body. So when you're weak in your body, when your body needs sleep, when your body is sick, when your body is growing old, when your body doesn't think it can take another step, when you pray to the living God of the universe, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus is saying, I've been there, done that. Isn't that incredible? Every one of you, when you talk, that's what Christmas means. That the great eternal spirit that lives in indescribable holiness and light became a little baby in the birth canal of Mary and was born into the world. You know why? Because he wants to be close to you. And every one of you, when you talk to him, he is incarnate. He is a man, and he knows what you're going through, and he's been there, done that. He's not someone that relates to you from a distance. And pray for my dear friend that I tried to help him understand, who are you to say that the great transcendent God can't become a human being? You ever think of how stupid it is? It just blows me away. Greek philosophy, like Plato will say, the eternal whatever it is out there can't become a human being. And I say, hey, God... God does what God does. To me, it's one of the most irrational things to say that the most powerful, ultimate being in the universe can't do what he's going to do. And the incredible thing is he's done it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived on this planet as God in the flesh. That's one of the precious gems you have. Don't let anyone ever take that away from you. He wasn't just a good prophet. He wasn't just a good 
religious moral teacher. He was the eternal living God in the flesh. It's one of the most precious gems that you hold inside your life. The second thing is incredible. It says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. You see, Dave, how do you know that that's true? Like my African-American friend says, I think that's a bunch of baloney. So what do you say then? I said, well, how many people do you know lived on the earth, claimed to be God, claimed that they're going to die on the cross for the sins of the world, and the third day, because Genesis 3.15 said a great serpent slayer is going to come that will destroy death and the serpent, on the third day, the tomb was empty. He said, if you show me another religious teacher that claimed to be God, that beat death, you say, Dave, what does this verse mean, that he was vindicated? Or, and it's actually the word justified, and it doesn't mean justified from sin. It means, you see, the religious leaders of Jesus say, if you were to ask Caiaphas, Caiaphas would have said, right after the crucifixion, we killed him because he's a false prophet. That's what Moses told us to do. We killed him because he didn't believe in our sacred space. In fact, he said he, he, we blew it a little bit. You know, he, he actually was talking about the temple of his body, but he did predict that the Romans were going to destroy the temple, which they did in 70. It's another reason why I know Jesus is true. But if I would have asked Caiaphas, he would have said, we had to kill him. Some of you that are all involved in sacred space and your own religion and stuff, you're going to kill the living power of Jesus working in your life, just like the Jewish leaders did. Caiaphas thought totally justified. He was jealous. He was murderous. He didn't see it at all. I had to kill him. So what does it mean that he was vindicated by the Spirit? On the third day, it says the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, with the power of the Father, with the power of the Son, the Son came back to life again in a glorious resurrected body. Amen? And I want every one of you to know, when your kids ask you, why should I believe in Jesus? It's what I often tell you. You're going down a really dark road. You can't see anything. It's a terrible storm up ahead. You don't know what's coming. There's a dead Moses over here. There's a dead Buddha over there. There's a dead Muhammad over there. And there's a living Jesus that reaches out to you and says, I want you to be my kid because I love you so much. I want to give the gift. Which one are you going to ever see? And we need, that's one of the most precious treasures. The reason that I know that Jesus was the son of God, biblically, is the first century witnesses say he rose again from the dead. He was vindicated by the spirit. And in John's gospel, he says that all the world might deny me and reject me. But God's Holy Spirit in his courtroom and God, my heavenly father, says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he goes into death. He comes back out again. And that's why you know he's the truth. And this church family, until Jesus comes back, better realize how precious that resurrected vindication of Jesus is. The third thing is he was seen by angels. In the first century, they were really in to supernatural beings. And they also had, and by the way, we're back into it again. When your kids go to college or they turn away from Jesus, they'll start worshiping spirits. And when you take drugs, you'll see spirits. But they're going to be the wrong spirits. First Peter says that Jesus, when he rose again, he, to, the, the, to the deepest recesses of hell, Jesus said, I've won the victory. Like in Noah's blood, very powerful spirits attacked the human race. And they were put into the deepest dungeon of hell. And 
Paul is saying Jesus declared his victory over the most powerful forces of darkness. They witnessed, they saw his sovereignty. The true angels, God's servants, they witnessed at his resurrection. They're the ones that said to Mary and Martha, he's not here. Come see the place that he lay. So the true angelic beings saw Jesus glorified and risen, returning. And that's, you say, what's important about that? that I, I want to go there, don't you? And the angelic ones are saying, Jesus is the one. We saw him alive, and we witnessed him. So at the ascension, which this hymn is going to close with, Jesus is going to ascend, and the angel is going to come and says, now go out and share that good news all over the world because he's going to come back again. That's what, this is a hymn in the first century, and that's how deep they sang to each other. He was proclaimed among the nations. I was in a God pod. They call it the God pod, the Z unit. And they're brothers in Christ that want to grow. I sat at a table across from a guy saying, you know, what do you do on Tuesday night? You're talking about Tuesday night. He says, I'm going to be in your class. Well, I'm going to get out of here pretty soon. I've been paroled. I don't know exactly when it's going to come through. But I want you to know, Dave, I want to learn the Old Testament. That's this incredible thing. The gospel's been proclaimed even in a prison. It's being proclaimed, and we want to proclaim it today. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you need to let this one that became flesh to come into your life. We want to help you to understand that. So this incredible hymn is saying that it was proclaimed into the world. It was preached among the nations. The Apostle Paul is saying, I devoted my whole life to proclaiming to the nations, and you need to pick up that baton, and you proclaim it to the nations. And then he says, you're going to get a response. How many of you believed in Jesus? How many of you are in the world? So Paul's told the truth. Isn't that incredible? It's 2,000 years since Paul lived. And more people than ever before have believed on Jesus. He believed in the world. If you don't know Jesus, I really want to tell you something. The most powerful, the most influential the most known person that's ever lived, no matter what you believe, you live in a world. If you go to India, you're going to hear about Jesus. If you go to China, you're going to hear about Jesus. If you go to Africa, in fact, pretty soon Africa is going to have a lot more believers than the U.S. does. In southern Africa, you're going to hear about Jesus. One of the big areas we need to pray is that we're going to penetrate the Islamic world just like the world of communism we've been able to penetrate. We live in a world where Jesus today is being believed on in the world. And I want us to realize that's the precious gem that we can proclaim it and we know we'll believe in the world. And then he was taken up in the glory. That's his ascension. What I just did, the incarnation, the vindication of the spirit and the resurrection, the proclamation of the gospel, the response to the gospel, and the ascension of Christ. We call that, what's the fancy word for all that? We call it the theology, the study of God. Those are pretty heavy-duty things, aren't they? Your brothers and sisters in the first century, that was one of their songs. I want you to know the church family, there's no place you can go in the Bible that says this is the note sequence, this is the drum you use, this is the guitar lick, this is the piano. To be honest with you, Paul would think all of our music, like even Great Is Thy Faithfulness, is a little bit weird. Because in the first century, they didn't use our English-style music. The Lord's going to give you all kinds of music in style, rhythms, forms. 
all over the world. The Bible has given us the content. We have hymns that we praise the incarnation. We have hymns where we praise the resurrection. We have songs that praise the incarnation and the ascension into glory. I close with this. When I went into the gym on Friday, you know, there's 70 guys. The prisoners all come in with their chairs. And there was a guy I noticed that had no arms. And he had one leg that was shorter than the other. And he walked like this. I'm thinking like, man, he's going to have a rough time in the prison. This isn't a great comforting place. They introduced the group that was going to sing. The drums started playing. Great steel guitar started playing. Great rhythm guitar. And the guy with no arms, with one leg shorter than the other, started singing with a voice that's just nothing but a pure gift from heaven. And those men gave him standing ovation after standing ovation. What I loved about it is John got up there. Here's this guy singing Texas Southern Rock. And he says, I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> and he says, when I was born, my physical mom and dad looked at my no arms and looked at my deformed leg, and they wanted nothing to do with me. And they left me. I was abandoned. I was raised in a home that has over 30 kids. He, had, he asked the guys, how many of you have 10 kids in your family? How many have 15? When he got up past 30, nobody else was raising their hand. And John says, I live, was raised in a home with over 30 kids. And he talked about being a teenager, being a young person. No girls wanted to even get close to a guy with no arm. So he had no chance. He said, one day, coming home from school, I'd be, you know, with no arms, it's hard to defend yourself. He says, I was kicked, I was beaten. And one day I went home, I was at a window, and I was going to jump out that window. And then I threw myself on my bed. I said, dear God, I really need you. And he told us many, he said, I met a Savior that died for me. That said, John, I love you. You're my kid, if you'll trust me. And John talked about being born into Jesus' family. And the resurrection power of Jesus came upon her. And he said, I never dreamt in a million years that I would have hundreds of men in Venus prison, a kid from New Jersey that's learned to sing Texas rock in perfect timing with just the right accent with a voice from heaven he said man I just want you to know I just want you to meet Jesus he said Jesus I'm married now for several years I now have kids my kids love me he said if Jesus can do that for me then he can do that for you no other religious faith in the world can tell a man with no arms that the eternal, infinite God of the universe can become incarnate, just not just in the body of Jesus, but Jesus can become part of you, live inside of you, make you a holy temple. Jesus has been vindicated. He can give resurrection power.
Jesus has ascended to glory. So one day John's going to have beautiful arms and perfect legs and everything else. His body will radiate. But his body radiated because of what I told you today. Because he was part of the house of God. The real living stone. That's who you are. You're the house of God with precious treasure of Jesus living in your life. Let's go out and comfort each other and bless each other and let the Lord help these truths to become more powerful. And like John, let's use the gifts the Lord has given us. Some, most of you have strong legs, strong arms. Most of you can't sing like John, so he's got you beat there. But every one of you is uniquely a stone in the temple of God to leave this room and proclaim the good news so it will be believed on in more and more of a world that needs to hear about this amazing grace.